spirit. Lord, would you make application beyond what I'm even able to? Would you, God, would you by your spirit uh, anoint my lips and anoint our ears to hear your word and to hear from you in your word? For Lord, your word is living and it's active. And it's sharper than a two-edged sword and it pierces deep within to the division of joint and marrow, bone and marrow, and of, of the soul and the spirit. And it discerns the intents of our hearts. And so would you speak this morning to us. Your people are ready to hear and waiting to hear from your word. And now, Lord, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. This morning, as we look at our second Advent sermon in the series, Christmas Carols, we're looking this morning at Zechariah's song. Zechariah's song is found in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, beginning at verse 67. If you're following along in the chairback Bibles, that can be found on page 856. <clears throat> I'll give you a moment to turn there. You know, our time in Uganda, we're going to share in a few minutes at the end of the service, we're going to share about uh, the testimony or a testimony from our time being in Uganda. But I always appreciate going to Uganda uh, because it, it helps me just personally and pastorally. It helps me to see the big picture of what God is doing in the midst of the world. Not just in the church of America, in the city or state of Louisiana, in the city of Baton Rouge, uh, and at the local gathering of, of Cross Point on this campus, but just globally. It helps me to see what God is doing in the midst of the nations. And for those of you who wonder, we did not get to visit or meet the Pope. So just FYI. All right. On Thursday morning. This past Thursday morning, the New York Daily Report ran a cover story that read, God isn't fixing this. This was in response to many people who took to the Twitterverse immediately following Wednesday's tragic and horrific shooting rampage in San Bernardino. Tweets were along the lines of, our thoughts and prayers are with the people of San Bernardino. In fact, during our our Crosspoint staff meeting on Wednesday, we prayed for the people of San Bernardino. Now, my point isn't, my, my point isn't to, to take up for any political party, but instead to vocalize an alarming trend that's becoming more and more apparent in our culture, and then to draw a line of delineation between two opposing worldviews, two worldviews with an ever-increasing chasm between them. The cultural worldview, which mocks any dependence on God and shakes its fist in the face of God, and a biblical worldview, which turns to God and cries out to God in the face of such evil and unconscionable acts of horror. The politicizing of prayer is a shameful thing. And this response by the New York Daily, God isn't fixing this, is a startling response that's intended to silence and shame Christians who would call out to God on behalf of those who are suffering. But I want us to see this morning, God has already provided a remedy to deal with the wickedness of man's heart. 
And there is coming a day when God will fix this. Fully and completely, God will fix this. That's what the celebration of Advent is all about. We live between the first and the second advent of Christ. And as Christians, we anxiously await the return of Christ Jesus, who will with finality fix the problem of evil in the world. Zechariah's song that we're looking at this morning, it's a prophecy that speaks directly to this hope of Christ fixing, redeeming the chaos and the brokenness of humanity. Because we live in a sin-sickened and dark world. We long for the day when Christ returns. And we long for that day when by faith we know that in that day we'll realize the great hope of our eternal salvation. In that day we'll return to the perfection that we were created to enjoy in God's presence. So, our celebration of Advent is our celebration of certainty that Christ came, that he satisfied God's wrath against our sin by dying in our place, and he will come again to make all things new. That is what we celebrate as we gather this morning, as we gather for this Advent season. And so today, here's what I hope we will see today and take away today. God's faithfulness calls forth our praise and equips our lives for service in proclaiming Christ's salvation to the world. We see God's faithfulness on display in the text that we're looking at this morning. As we look at Verses 67 through 80, I I want us to just back up a few verses prior to verse 67 to verse 63. And note that John the Baptist's birth has just occurred. Zechariah is his father. And in verse 63, what's happening is Elizabeth has said his name's going to be John. And everybody turned and looked to Zechariah to find out if that's really what his name was going to be. Because there wasn't any relative in their family who was named John. And so Zechariah, he asked for a writing tablet, verse 63. And he wrote, his name is John. And they all wondered, verse 64. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed. And he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors, and all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, 
For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit. And he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Now, Zechariah's song here, I, I, wish, I, I wish we had the tune to be able to sing it, to just get the full effect of what's going on in the midst of this declaration. But Zechariah's song of praise is divided into two main sections. First, he offers praise for God's covenant-keeping faithfulness in verses 67 through 75. Now, Israel had experienced 400 long years of darkness without the voice of God's prophets. And Isaiah prophetically spoke of the end of this darkness in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2. When he says, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. And the Old Testament closed with a promise similarly in Malachi chapter 4 verse 2 when he says, But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness, notice S-U-N, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. See, the rising of the Son of Righteousness was a long-awaited messianic prophecy. And on the day of John the Baptist's birth, a new prophetic word was delivered to God's people through Zechariah, John the Baptist's father. And on this day, God broke the 400 years of dark silence. And the first words out of Zechariah's mouth were words of praise. See, Zechariah's prophecy, it hinges on two covenants. And I think it's important for us to see this because it highlights the very character and nature of God. You see, God's faithfulness in keeping two covenants that he made, one with David and one with Abraham, reveal God's faithfulness to work within the progressive revelation of his word. So Zechariah praises God for his faithfulness. First, he praises him in stating that Jesus is the present powerful deliverer. We see this in verses 68 through 71. The Davidic covenant promised a king. And this king would establish an eternally enduring kingdom through the line of King David. This king would be one who would rule supremely. And he would usher in God's kingdom. And so Zechariah's praise centers on three actions of this coming king. He's the present powerful deliverer. And so Zechariah speaks here as if he's speaking in past tense. He's speaking as if God's mission through this coming king has already been fulfilled. You see there in verse 68, Blessed is the Lord, the God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. There are three main words in this first section of Zechariah's song that really tip us off to the action of God and what he's doing in the midst of this prophecy and this fulfillment. 
And those three words, one is visited. The second one is redeemed, if you want to underline them in your Bible. And the third one is a horn of salvation. These three words characterize God's mission to deliver his people. And so the visitation, it speaks of the incarnation. What Zechariah is saying is this promised king, he has come. God's promise is occurring. And it's come to pass. In other words, God is present with his people. He has come to dwell among his people. He has made his presence to be in the presence of his creation. The God-man, Jesus Christ, has come to creation to right the wrong of sin by identifying with his people. And he, by necessity, through death, has put to death the power and sting of sin when he triumphantly conquered sin in the flesh through his resurrection. This is the hope and the power of the gospel. This is what Jesus Christ's mission on earth was all about. This is why he became incarnate. And this is why Zechariah is proclaiming or prophesying this message about Jesus as the one who would be present It also speaks to his work of redemption as deliverer. It says there in verse 68, for he has redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation. This gives us the picture of his power. Like that of a mighty ox that raises up his horns and thrashes them back and forth in victory over his enemy. And what he's saying is in a like manner, The birth of the promised Davidic king, Christ, majestically displays God's power in salvation for his people, for you and for me. And so this coming of Christ is the hope of our salvation. This present king, he will deliver his people and with power he will defeat their enemies. And so the horn of salvation really means two things then here. The first thing is it it means his victory would come through redemption of his people. This king was not like any ordinary king. This coming king is a king who will lay down his life for his people. And he'll ransom his people from sin. Just like an ox would be slaughtered in sacrifice, so this king will give his life and his blood will be spilt for the ransom of his people from sin. And here's what this king will do. This king will justify his people before God for eternity. And so therefore he has purchased their salvation. He has redeemed his people But secondly, this horn of salvation, it will bring deliverance from enemies at the final return of Christ. And perhaps this is the greatest hope that we have in Christ. Revelation 19, verses 1 through 16, is a chapter that details this powerful deliverance of Christ over our enemies. And in verses 1 and 2 of Revelation 19, hear what the word of the Lord says. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. 
for his judge, the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Verse 6 of Revelation 19 goes on to speak of this great celebration of the marriage supper of the Lamb. And then in verses 11 through 16, we're given this dramatic picture of the warrior king who's fully garbed in his, in his, war kingly, in his war, warrior kingly attire. He's called Faithful and True. He's pictured riding on a white horse and he's leading the armies of heaven riding on white horses and he's executing justice. And he's clothed with a robe that's dipped in blood and the name by which he is called is the word of God. And then listen to what Revelation 19, 15 and 16 says about this king. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has the name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And it's for this reason that Zechariah praises God. He praises him because God is installing his righteous king. God is installing his present powerful deliverer. And church, what I want us to see this morning is I, I want our hearts and our lives to be filled with this same kind of praise that Zechariah is offering before God. For the Lord Jesus Christ has come, and now he is enthroned at the right hand of the Father on high. And he sits at God's right hand. And he has made a way for us to know God's salvation in the first advent. And so we see this is praiseworthy. This is why Zechariah is praising God because he is faithful. He is faithful to his covenant and he is faithful to deliver his people. He is both present and powerful in the lives of his people and he is also merciful and equipping in the lives of his people. And so we see that Jesus is the merciful, equipping deliverer. Not only is God faithful to the Davidic covenant, God is also faithful to the Abrahamic covenant. We see this in verse 72 to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. You see, God's mercy is seen as the backdrop for his covenant-keeping faithfulness with Abraham. God remembered his holy covenant with his people. That covenant is the covenant which is stated in Genesis chapter 22, verses 16 through 18. That God would make of Abraham a great nation as numerous as the stars of heaven and the sand of the seashore. And that through Abraham's offspring, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. The promise of blessing is now at hand through the visitation of Christ the Messiah. So Zechariah praises God for the merciful, equipping deliverer. And I think this is particularly significant for you and I because what we need to do is we need to see that God's mercy toward us comes in the person and the work of Christ. And by giving us His mercy, He is also equipping us to go and to serve Him and to serve His kingdom in the midst of the world in which we live until the second advent coming of Christ. And so God's plan is progressively unfolding. And so God's mercy 
it's seen toward us and that he doesn't give us the just retribution that our sin deserves. Instead, his visitation and redemption come through his one and only son. In fact, just as Abraham didn't withhold his one and only son from God when God called him to lay Isaac on the altar. So now we see that God is sending his one and only son on a divine rescue mission. Christ's ministry of deliverance goes far beyond the Roman oppression that Zechariah is experiencing in his day. Christ's ministry of deliverance is the ultimate deliverance that's against our greatest adversary, Satan, and the fallen nature of our sinful depravity. One writer says, or writes, Jesus is the promised one who takes on the cosmic forces of our humanity that oppress us and bring pain and suffering into the world. Jesus is the great liberator from Satan and sin's tyranny against humanity. And what we see is the purpose of his divine rescue mission is to create a people who are free to serve him without fear, in holiness and in righteousness. And through redemption, he equips us to serve him. This is what Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 22, encouraging us to put off the old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. You see, the new reality for all who profess Christ is that we've been freed to live lives of holiness and righteousness through Christ's atoning work. We aren't sent out on our own. Rather, we're sent out and equipped by the Lord Jesus Christ to faithfully follow him and to work in service of God's eternal kingdom. And I want you to know that our profession of faith in Christ must be lived out in service to the kingdom of Christ. God's mercy to us is that Christ liberates us from bondage. He removes our fear. He equips us to serve God all our days as we await his return. This was a prayer of the early church in Acts chapter 4, verse 29. When they said, now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Even in light of the New York Daily and what we hear and see tweeted and, and what, we, what we see printed on the front of newspapers today. God isn't fixing this. This ought to be the church's prayer. Now, Lord, hear their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. For we've been, we've been given the first advent of Christ. He has come. He has redeemed us. He has purchased our sin with his own life and he has empowered us by his spirit. And now we, we are called church to live this out righteously and to walk in holiness and to proclaim the truth of God's word in the midst of the darkness of this world. Secondly, in verses 76 through 80, he offers praise for God's provision of salvation's promise. 
prays for God's provision of salvation's promise. I don't know if you can or not, but I invite you to try to imagine the magnitude of this moment for Zechariah. It's the birth of his firstborn son. Elizabeth was past the age of being able to bear children. He's wanted a child. And in the midst of his interaction with Gabriel in the inner uh, temple, he is muted because he did not believe. And for the last nine months, he hasn't been able to speak. And all of a sudden, when he writes down on a tablet, his name is John, his tongue is loosed, and he is able to speak. And in the midst of all this, he sees his baby boy, his firstborn, and then he realizes that he is the focus of divine revelation. The magnitude of this moment for Zechariah must have been incredible. And the first thing he does is he blesses God. In the midst of this moment, he blesses God for sending the forerunner. God sends the forerunner. We see this in verses 76 and 77. John's mission is laid out there. He's the forerunner of Christ. And as the prophet of the Most High, he is to fulfill what God's word has already prophesied would happen. Malachi chapter 3 verse 1 reads, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. And again in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. You see, John's mission was to announce the advent of the promised king, the Messiah. His purpose was to roll out the red carpet so that all eyes would be drawn to this moment in history where God interacts, steps in, in the incarnation, and he takes upon flesh. The creator becomes like the created in that he takes upon himself the body of man. So we see John's mission is to announce, and his message is seen in verse 77, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. What was John to proclaim? Well, he was to proclaim this message of repentance of sin and forgiveness through this one who is coming that would lead to salvation. I should pause just for a minute to note the significance of what this prophetic passage is stating. That Jesus Christ himself is the way to come to the Father. And that it's through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ that men and women, any boy, girl, come to God. It is only through Jesus Christ that we have access to the Heavenly Father and have salvation. This is a distinctly Christian doctrine of exclusivity. That there is no other way to get to God but through the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's what his advent and initial coming was about. It was to make the way. And so John the Baptist here is called to proclaim and to make the way, to prepare the way for the one who is coming. And that one is Jesus Christ. 
Christ. This is the hope of the gospel message. Church, our mission then parallels John's mission. Only we don't go before the Lord. Now we go with the Lord. By his indwelling spirit, we walk in holiness and righteousness. And we too, as ambassadors of Christ, go into the world to prepare. Listen, to prepare for him, for God, a people for his own possession. This is our service in the kingdom of God. This is what following Christ is all about. Listen, this is why we go to Uganda to strengthen the church there, to see the gospel spread among the nations. This is why we host a a parents' night out to foster families in our community. This is why we host an ESL ministry to reach out to the nations, to, to teach conversational English to people who are lost in the midst of darkness and need to see the light of Christ. This is why we have a food pantry ministry on our campus so that we give out physical food and we're able to meet spiritual needs in the midst of our handing out physical food. This is why we gather for home groups to experience community as God designed that we would experience within the body of Christ. This is why we hold equipping classes. It is to disciple and to grow and to be taught the word of God so that we would grow in our knowledge and understanding of God's word. Listen, church, this this is what following Christ is all about. Preparing for him, our husband, a bride who is ready and willing to walk with him, who is to be adorned with the washing of the water of the word, and is to go out faithfully serving him. Church, our message parallels John's message as well. Only we're proclaiming Christ came. And that which was a mystery to John has been made clear to us. For we now see what John only saw partially. We see it fully. When John proclaimed, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world... He didn't know exactly how that was to happen or to take shape. But you and I are able to see that Christ became the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so we proclaim Christ's death, His burial, and His resurrection for the life of the world. This is our mission. And this is our message, church. We too, like John, must call men and women to repentance we too must prepare the way of the Lord. For with the same assuredness of Christ's first coming, we know with certainty that he will return. And this alone ought to compel us to live with great urgency. He is coming back. And our message and our mission is to proclaim his coming and to build for him that he would build through us rather a people for his own possession. You see, we're God's people sent into the world to proclaim this glorious message and to call people to repentance in preparation for the second coming of Christ. Believer, we too also must prepare our own lives for Christ's return. And so this begs the question, are we preparing this Christmas season for what truly matters? 
Are you trusting Christ for the forgiveness of your sins? Are you running from sin and pursuing Christ with all that you have? Are you serving Christ and living with a kingdom urgency? If you're like me, the weight of these questions can be convicting. But it doesn't mean that we should cease relying upon the Holy Spirit's grace and mercy toward us, that we would walk with him in holiness and righteousness and serve Christ with all that is within us. But not only does God send the forerunner, we see finally that God provides the sunrise. We see this in verses 78 and 79. In verse 32 of chapter 1 here in Luke's gospel, Jesus is called the son of the most high God. Now, John the Baptist is called the prophet of the Most High God, and his, his role is to proclaim the coming of the Son of the Most High God. Jesus' coming is the embodiment of the dawning of God's tender mercy toward his creation. And I love the metaphor that he uses in verses 77 or 78 and 79. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. He uses the the metaphor of the sunrise of creation, which dispels darkness and lights up the day. You and I are where we've seen the sun rise in the eastern sky, and as it, as it rises over the horizon, it begins to cast away the darkness. The, the rays of light pierce in the midst of darkness, and, and that darkness fades away as the light bursts onto the scene. But I want you to know that the sunrise he's talking about isn't just an ordinary sunrise. This sunrise is the visitation from the Most High The creator of all creation steps down into creation to redeem the brokenness of humanity. This is what Christ has done. This is the answer to fixing the problem of evil in our world. Christ has come to redeem the wickedness of our own hearts, the depravity of our sin, And only Christ can heal your brokenness. Hear me out. He's the only one that can heal the brokenness of humanity and particularly of our individual brokenness. This is exactly what Christ does. He illuminates the darkness of night. He casts away the darkness of death and he guides us into the way of true peace. There's no darkness that Christ can't illuminate. There's no sin that Christ can't defeat. There's no despair that Christ can't overcome. And there certainly is no enemy that Christ can't conquer and hasn't already conquered. Christ's visitation guides our feet into the way of peace. I want you to hear me this morning. True peace isn't the absence of conflict in our lives. It's not the absence of war between Nations, true peace is knowing the salvation of God through Jesus Christ. This is the promise of God's salvation in Christ. It's the promise of the first advent and the hope of the second advent that he is coming back. 
And we see in verse 80, it says about John the Baptist that he goes out into the wilderness. And as he's waiting in the wilderness, he's waiting for the day of his public appearance. And the way that I want to close our challenge challenge us this morning is just as John waited the day of his public appearance to Israel, and just as Israel awaited the day of the rising sun to bring the first rays of light into the darkness of the world, so this Advent season, we live in the light of Christ. Our lives are mirrors reflecting His light into the darkness while we await the second and most glorious coming of Christ. He's coming again. And when He does, He will fully heal the brokenness of humanity. He will fix this. So God's faithfulness calls forth our praise. Are we able to praise God because we know him to be faithful in our lives? Do we praise God because we, we experience his faithfulness? We call out to him and we, we, we follow him? God's faithfulness calls forth our praise and it requires lives of service in proclaiming Christ's salvation to the world. Does this sum up our lives that we as God's children are serving him by proclaiming this hope of the gospel message in the midst of the dark world? Are we being silenced by the crowds? Are we being silenced by our own sin? Let us remember to walk in holiness and righteousness as we serve Christ and live for him, for his glory, as we prepare for the second coming, the return of Christ our Savior. I want to pray with us this morning. And as I lead in a time of prayer, I want to ask that if you've never come to a place in your life where you have surrendered your life to Jesus Christ as Lord and believed upon this Jesus that we've been talking about, the first coming, the, the advent of Christ, where God the Father stepped down into humanity through God the Son, became like us, served humanity and lived a sinless, perfect life, dying on the cross in order to pay for our sin by suffering God's wrath. If if you've never believed upon Jesus, that Jesus, I want to invite you this morning to confess that Jesus Christ as Lord. For Jesus, as coming from the Father, is the one who grants us true peace. Let me pray for us. Pray with me. Father, this morning as we come before you, there may be some in here who are struggling with true peace during this Advent season. There may be some who are struggling with whether or not, whether or not to even surrender their lives to you. Deep down, they know they need to. They, they hear you calling, but there's this tug in the opposite direction where they don't want to surrender. I pray for those individuals this morning. God, that you would strengthen them, that you would break the bondage of sin that's holding them, that you would be for them the true liberator of the enemy, Satan, and of the sinfulness of our humanity. And Lord, for each of us, I pray that you would strengthen us to walk in the power of your spirit. God, that you would continue mercifully to equip us to proclaim your word and to serve you in the midst of the world in which we live. 
And I pray, God, that you would place, like Zechariah, you would place a song in our step. God, that we would be filled with the praise of your name and of your glory. And I pray this in the strong and the powerful name of Christ our Savior. Amen. Today, if you're confessing Jesus Christ for the first time, I want to invite you to come and let me know. Let me pray with you.